For your information is brought to you by Winston Cigarettes, the brand Doctors Trust. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Information with Zach and John. We're coming at you with dignity. Always dignity. Welcome to For Your Information, a podcast about great movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your hosts, Zach. And I'm John. Uh, Zach, you've done the unthinkable. You have made me watch a musical movie. Not, not just a movie that is also a musical, but a movie that is also a musical that is about a musical. It is at times about a musical. It is at times about silent film era. It is at times about love and loss, and everything in between. Of course, we're talking about one of my personal favorite films, Singing in the Rain. Um, I have seen this movie probably goddamn near 120 times. This is like my, uh, my depression movie. Like, if I'm, like, in a, like, depression rut, like, I will seriously watch this movie three times in a day. Like, it just makes me feel better, and it just makes, like, I, I want to live in that world where, like, everything sucks, but it's good at the end. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Uh, I'm also glad to watch a movie that uh, doesn't lie in the title. You know, like Silence of the Lambs. Uh, it's not a silent movie. There's no lambs in it. That's a bummer. Uh, right. Singing in the Rain, there is singing, there is rain, and they do actually sing in the rain. Right. And it's it's just so good. Like, the, the way that they make... The, the way that the movie presents itself, especially in the first couple of scenes. But before we get into that, so... John, how did how have you not seen Singing in the Rain? Like, this is one of the most famous films of all time. What like what prevented you from seeing this? Uh, honestly, lack of exposure. Like, I knew it was a film, mm-hmm. and that was it. I just knew it was a movie. The same way that I might know, um, literally any other movie is a movie. Uh, Planet Terror, uh, a movie that, believe it or not, I haven't seen. Uh, I, I know it's a movie. It's out there. That's, that's it. It would. It, it's okay that you haven't seen Planet Terror. It would be weirder if you had seen Death Proof and not Planet Terror. Okay, fair enough. I need to see all of them, frankly. Yeah, right. Like Grindhouse is really, really good. Um, it, especially, especially like for movies that you and I both like, kind of like fringy, like you know, Grindhouse movies. <laughs> it um, yeah. it, it definitely itches that scratch for you. But anyway, that is not Singing in the Rain. Um, so no. this was your first viewing of Singing in the Rain ever. Uh, how did you feel about it? Uh, it, it is a feel-good movie. I see why this is a, a depressive classic for you. Uh, this is something that you mm-hmm. want to watch when you feel bad. Um, I think that for a musical movie, it's probably one of the better ones that I've seen. I like it better than pretty much every like Disney musical movie that I've seen. Okay. Is it and, is uh, it the I, lack of cartoons or? <laughs> I think it's truly just the uh, the time and place. It's got an appeal to it. It's mm-hmm. very like colorful, even though it's not necessarily supposed to be because of the time. We'll talk more about that stuff later, but it's got a lot of appeal. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's got sex appeal. It's got musical appeal. It's got you know. It's just pretty to look at. Like the color schemes in this thing are just fucking great. You know what? Uh, the other movie that we've done like this that I kind of felt the same way about was Juno, actually. Um, it it had a good visual appeal. It had a good aesthetic about it. The musical choices were very well done, very well placed, and they contributed mm-hmm. to the story a lot. And um, 
it carried itself very well. It's just a well done movie. It, it's a movie in its right space. Right, and this movie, even though it is a musical, and musicals usually take place on stage, I, I can't see this movie being being in any other medium. Like, th- there is a Broadway stage adaption, but it's like it's not the same. You know, like the the magic of it is the characters and the actors portraying them. To me, I think I could agree. I think if you put anybody else in those roles it might not be as cool. yeah uh i would like to see a uh, a vincent price maybe as don <laughs> i think that would be fun i don't know how much of a singer he is <laughs> i i just i can't see vincent price doing it like yeah does he sing i, I want to know what that sounds like yeah yeah you know what how vincent price i'm trying to think of some of the best vincent price movies off the top of my head uh last man on earth okay there's one mm-hmm. i don't remember what year that is but i know it wasn't 1952 he might have actually been quite young in 1952 what he i thought vincent price was like so i i know he's passed away since but like i thought he was like super old he was older like what in his heyday even when he did most of his movies he was middle-aged at least yeah, so he was probably born in, like, 1901 or something like that. Here. Yeah, okay, well, if that's the case, then he could have done it. Why are we arguing about this? I could just look it up. There is a there is a computer in my pocket. We have technology. We don't have to guess. Vincent Price. Yep, uh, May 27th, 1911. Oh, okay, okay, so he would have been uh, 40, 41. He would have been 41 released. years old when this released. Oh, no, he's a prime pick, then. Yeah, I mean, he uh, Gene Kelly was damn near 40 when he made this movie, so he, he could have done it. Why why not? Why not Vincent Looking Price? Looking at you, MGM. Looking at why no Vincent Price? I, I, maybe he was contracted somewhere else. Maybe this was truly a contract situation where they wanted Vincent Price, but they couldn't get him. First time for everything. First time for everything. You know what it's not the first time for? A new cocktail from my best boy, John. John... What, what did you cook up to go with such a great movie as Singing in the Rain? I'm kind of proud of this one. I, I know I say that maybe like once a month where I just have a cocktail. I'm like, yeah, you, yeah. if you drink any of the cocktails, drink this one. This is one of those cocktails. You know Ooh. that guy? This is that guy. Yeah, so uh, this cocktail is called The Starlet. And I was kind of conflicted about this because in the movie, the only thing they really drink are champagne cocktails. Or at least that's what it looks like they're drinking. They don't talk about it. There's, It's not really a, a fixture in the film. But it would have been commonplace for them to be drinking that at the time. I have already done a champagne cocktail for um, Casablanca, and I didn't want to do that again, especially not like so soon. It's not that far away time-wise, so I, I see why that's a part of it, but mm-hmm. that's not important. What is important is that we got something classy for you. I actually broke the glass for this after making the cocktail, and it was a big bummer. Uh, so, there, fortunately, no blood, but there was a lot of sweat and tears. <laughs> Just tears over spilled alcohol. Um, You can't cry over spilled milk, but you can cry over a broken glass of alcohol, for sure. Yes, you can, and you should. All right, so here's how you would make it. So, you're going to get your cocktail shakers out, and you're going to combine one ounce of drambuie, two ounces of sweet vermouth, a half ounce of lemon juice, and three ounces of frozen raspberry mix. So this is something that I kind of made up. I don't know of anybody else that does this or has done this, but uh, in order to make the raspberry mix, what you're going to do is you're going to take like a mason jar or some kind of other like sealable glass container, and you're going to fill it about 70% of the way up with frozen raspberries and 30% of the way with frozen strawberries. You're going to cover it all with vodka and let it sit. Uh, Overnight is best. This gives you the best effect. Kind of shake it around, you know, agitate it a little bit. You want 
want the flavors to seep out of the fruit and into the booze. So what you're going to do then is freeze it. And when you freeze it, it's not going to go totally solid because it's alcoholic, even though there's still a mm -hmm. lot of water content in it. So what you're going to end up with is something that's like frozen fruit slurry that is alcoholic, which is exactly what you want. So you're going to take three ounces of that fruit and all, just scooped right out with a spoon, and plop that down in there too with the dash of simple syrup, and you're going to mix it all together. Um, Ideally, you would shake this, but if your cocktail shaker is not big enough to actually shake all of the stuff in there together, stirring it will probably work just fine. So go ahead and do that, and uh, then you're going to strain it out. I highly recommend double straining this cocktail just because there's so many small pieces of fruit and maybe some like lemon, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pulp, yeah, so some lemon pulp in there. And uh, when you pour it into a glass like a coupe glass, which is what you're going to use, uh, it kind of loses a bit of its effect if it has a bunch of little stuff floating in it. And you're already going to have enough of that with the raspberries because it's got those tiny, tiny little strands in them uh, that are really hard to get out. So uh, make sure you double strain this one if possible and uh that there you have it you could just garnish it with the lemon wheel and that's all you got all righty that, that very classy that sounds like something you would make like you know for a big party you would just hand these out as people come in as the party savers and then there you know there'd be the normal booze over on the table but this is like oh, what yeah. you start your night off with this is like a good start your night off cocktail i wouldn't drink too many of these and also uh while we're here uh what is drambuie um, I'm very lost on what that is. Oh, okay, okay. So, Drambuie is a whiskey-based liquor. It's okay. um, scotch whiskey and honey and spices. So, most notably, heather, which is kind of unconventional. Most people don't like flavor alcohol with heather. But uh, it actually comes together really nice, so you kind of get the spiciness. But it's not bitter, you know? It's it's really tame. You still get a lot of the taste of the whiskey coming through. So, uh, it's, it's a whiskey drink. It, it's like a spiced whiskey. Okay, so it's... Oh, God, my brain. Okay, well, thank you for the explanation, John. Uh, I'm sure me and some, at least one other person did not know what the fuck that is. Uh, but yeah, now it's got a I fun know, name, though. It, yeah, Drambuie. 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 Um, so, can you find that at, like, a normal liquor store? Uh, yeah, I would say anywhere that you can find those types of uh, mid-top-shelf spirits, uh, you're going to be able to find this. So anywhere where you can get Cointreau, Grand Marnier, things like that, you're probably going to be able to get Drambuie. I'd say it's about as common as uh, maybe like Midori or Grand Marnier. Okay, okay. So probably not at a mom-and-pop liquor store, but definitely like a total. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they probably have like a bunch of stuff like this. They probably even have like a generic variety of it. Although I don't know how much I would trust a generic Drambuie. I I this is one of the few cocktails I've ever actually made with Drambuie, and honestly, if you're looking to get into it and give it a shot, this is probably a good cocktail for you. Okay, definitely, definitely. What, and also, before we move on, what else do they use Heather in? Uh, honestly, off the top of my head, I couldn't really think of one. I think Benedictine might have Heather in it, but I, I don't actually know. There's a bunch of spices in Benedictine. Oh, okay, okay. Benedictine. It's a, it's Benedictine. A, it sounds like, it sounds like something they give you at the dentist. Like, alright, we're gonna give you some Benedictine for this root canal. Honestly, best dentist ever. <laughs> Hey, 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 it's me, your dentist, Dr. Thickums. You gonna give me some, uh, you gonna get me drunk, Dr. Thickums? Oh, I'm gonna give it to you so good. I'm gonna give you this Benedictine, and then I'm Ooh. gonna drill into your teeth, and then I'm gonna make out with you a little bit. You didn't hear that. Take this Benedictine, you'll forget about it. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. That that's, that's the best dental experience of my life, and it wasn't <laughs> even a real dental experience. <laughs> Speaking of things that feel like dental 
general experiences. Uh, it, do we have Frank Synopsis in the studio? Hey, you thought that I was hiding out, and I was. You were right. Uh, d- please do not ever come up from underneath my table that I sit at in this office that I make up, Frank. What are you doing down there? Well, you know what's uh, people aren't too kind to people hanging out outside these days. You know, you gotta kind of stay home, and uh, Central Park is closed, and uh, just kind of make do with what I got. Did you not try to, like, keep your keep Central Park rent controlled for you, Frank? Well, I don't think the rent's really the issue. It's more so the uh, Cerveza virus. It's the Cerveza virus. Um, I don't think that's what it's called. Uh, it is actually the novel coronavirus. That's what I said, Cerveza virus. Okay, whatever you need to get through, Frank. Um, so I'm guessing since you were, you've apparently been in the studio for an indeterminable amount of time, uh, did you have time to watch Singing in the Rain? Oh, of course I did. I was actually on set when they were filming Singing in the Rain. Oh, awesome. Who, uh, were, were you a role or were you just visiting set? Like, how did that go? You remember the part of the movie where Don says he would rather kiss a tarantula? Correct. Well, you see, I am actually one of those elusive tarantula-faced men, a, a bit of a bit of a face fluffer. Just something that they can kiss. It's a tarantula kisser to get uh, them back into character. Oh, so, okay, I've never heard of this before. So, like, is this kind of like in porn where they, like, stick hot sauce up the dude's asshole to, like, keep him hard for longer or to keep him from coming? The same. The same? Okay, so they kiss you, they get all your, like, stingy little tarantula hairs onto them, and then, like, it makes them better actors somehow? Hey, pain is a great teacher. <laughs> is the director like, all right, you fucked the scene up again. Go kiss Frank. That'll learn you to fuck up the scene. You know, when you put it that way, I uh, don't remember it as fondly. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Frank. I- I'm sure that the tarantula-faced men kissers are just a great part of Hollywood that they're trying to keep under wraps because they don't want you to feel like that, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so tell me about the plot of Singing in the Rain, Frank. All right, let's get to it. The year is 1927, and silent film star Don Lockwood is at the top of his game. With his best pal Cosmo Brown, his new love interest Kathy Selden, and his bitter on-screen partner Lena Lamont, it seems nothing could go wrong. That is, until Warner Brothers released The Jazz Singer, the world's first talkie picture. With Don's career in jeopardy of being phased out, he and his gang make a last-ditch effort to make the talkie musical extravaganza. All right. Thank you, Frank. Very succinct. Uh, I think that gets to the point of the movie. Um, If you would let John back in, um, your money is on the table. Um, Exactly $3.52. That'll get you back to Central Park, Um, even though I'm guessing you're not going back there today oh we'll figure it out uh, you have a razor by the way i'm a little bit scratchy here um yeah actually here hang on i always keep a razor with me because i grow a beard pretty much in a day so here you go well that makes two of us i uh, can't promise you're gonna get it back in one piece i absolutely don't want it back as soon as you touch anything i don't want it back understood i'll keep that in mind yeah all right well see you later frank john are all you right, back with you. us I... Did you, like, break a glass outside or something? Uh, no. I thought you broke a glass. Oh, no. I just got this, like, sharp singing feeling in my foot. I feel like there's, like, a tiny piece of something stuck in there. Oh, that's probably from Frank's beard. He was shaving his tarantula hair. Did you know he has tarantula hairs on his face? Is that a thing? I don't know. I, I don't think that's a thing. Okay, maybe he just has a very sharp beard. I don't know. Maybe that happens when you're 173. Anyway. Who knows? Who cares? Who cares? You know what I care about? Singing in the rain. I care about this movie dearly, just like I said at the beginning of this whole episode and before we get into like you know the production and everything like that I think it's very important to do a mini like overview of film history here because they make mention of a lot of things that actually happened in the 1920s so in the 1920s 
talkie films did become a thing like this is when they were able to synchronize sound with film and i know that sounds like that's what everyone does now but before then it was all silent and if you don't know what silent films are it's like they're all black and white the frames per second is like really fucking horrible so it almost just looks like a bunch of pictures like flipping by and there would be title cards for like dialogue if there were any at all and um just like in this movie they find out very quickly that people love talking movies and they make mention of a specific movie called the jazz singer which doubt which was a real movie and it starred al jolson as like a jazz singer who also wears blackface sometimes but you know what don't worry about that <laughs> you, you know you say don't worry about that like it doesn't also make an appearance in this movie yeah there there is a moment of blackface luckily it is very short it doesn't take up a lot of screen time it's not a central plot device like it is in the jazz singer because i think they already knew this was bad at this point I get. I mean, they were just doing like an ooga booga dance around a campfire in blackface. I don't know how much worse you can get. I know. I at times I've wondered if maybe it was supposed to. It was commentating on the types of movies that were being made then. I'm wondering. I if think you're it, giving them a lot of credit. Like, I, I've always wondered how things like that come about. Is it truly they just did not know any better, or were they trying to be mean? Like, I, I mean, it has to be a little this, bit of both. It takes place in the era just after, like, vaudeville's heyday. Like, that's a part of the plot. And, like, yes. I, I guess in the 20s, it, it was a totally different outlook. I say the 20s like we're not in the 20s right now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. do you ever think about that? Oh, shit, yeah. Um, in two years, this movie will have taken place a, a hundred years ago. That's crazy to think about. But not what we were talking about. Anyway, blackface, bad. Uh, singing in the Rain on the whole is good. Yes, it is good. There's... There's not much else objectionable in this movie other than that. But, you know. Anyway, so around this time, um, when talkies came out, just like Don Lockwood is worried about his career, a lot of, like, very famous silent film stars were very, very worried about their career once talkies started taking off. Especially, like, people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Uh, Buster Keaton had a very high nasally voice like this, and he, he just never made it into... Uh, like audio film and charlie chaplin very similar he just does not sound the way that you think he's supposed to sound okay i mean i see how that could be a problem and that is kind of the focal point of this plot as well yeah it is a focal point of this plot with like lita and it it's just it's so sad that that happened to those people and that like you know especially in this time like gravitas was everything like you either had to be the most masculine male ever or you had to be, like, the most beautiful woman ever to be in, like, talkie pictures. And on top of that, you had to be an okay actor. But the beauty okay. came first. Right, right. Like, because if you're not beautiful, it doesn't matter. None of the rest of it matters. You can be beautiful. I, mean, I guess so. In, 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 like, 1920s movies, you can be beautiful and a horrible actress, or you have to be a great actress, but you're ugly and you're playing a witch. I mean, hey, radio was really big at the time, so you can always go to radio. Yep, yep, just like us. Faces for radio or podcasts. Just like us. Just like us. The stars are just like us. Anyway, okay. One of us. One, One of, of us. us. One of... Okay. Um. <laughs> so, let's get into Singing in the Rain now that, like, it's been contextualized a little bit. Um, so, Singing in the Rain was uh, released in 1952. It was directed by star Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan. Uh, it was produced by Arthur Freed, who is a friend of the show. He also produced 
the Wizard of Oz, which we have also done an episode on, so go check that out. Um, it is check it out. Check 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 it out. Um, <laughs> the screenplay is by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, a very famous MGM writers. Uh, the story is also by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, and it stars Gene Kelly as Don Lockwood, Donald O'Connor as Cosmo Brown, and Debbie Reynolds as Kathy Selden. Um, John, just before we get into it, Debbie Reynolds, uh, are you aware of who she is? Um, like, deadass, you told me this, like, a couple days ago, and I have already forgotten. Okay, so, Debbie Reynolds is the mother of Carrie Fisher, who is Princess Leia. Okay, how about that? So, uh, Small World, uh, stardom, breed stardom, maybe? Uh, maybe we had, like, a... Like a less unfortunate, slightly less abused Judy Garland situation here? Yes, very much so. A lot of people compared her to Judy Garland, and of course Judy Garland was massively more famous than her at the time, but she also did get a lot of cred for this movie because she was up there dancing with fucking Gene Kelly, and Gene Kelly's like the best song and dance man that's ever lived. Anyway, speaking of song and dance, um... The original score was done by Lenny Hayton, and new songs were written by Arthur Freed himself. Oh, how about that? Yep, so this movie is, before we get into any of anything else, um, the movie is comprised mostly of um, music from the 1920s, so around the turn of when talkies were coming out, except for two songs, and we'll get into that later. But so this movie is actually technically one of the first jukebox musicals. Okay, so you say jukebox musical, and they just pick it from a specific time. Is this kind of like the whole, like, uh, oh, what is it? Across the Universe phenomenon? Yes, it's like Across the Universe. It's like Rock of Ages. There's tons of these kinds of musicals. Like, they were very popular when, like, we were kids, like, in the, like, 90s and, like, 2000s. Like, people loved these because you didn't have to worry if you were going to like the music in a musical because you already know that you like what it's based on. I guess that's true. Does it freak you out at all to think that, like, in the 50s, their 30 years prior was the 20s, and that's what they used, and our 30 years prior would be the early 90s? I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> 30 Like, literally, Nirvana. Literally, Nirvana's first album. Like, Bleach. If they made a musical about Bleach. <laughs> they should make this. a musical about Bleach. Singing Under the Bridge. That's, that's what it'll nice. be called. Nice, I like it. <laughs> All right, so just to finish up some of the, you know, like the Wikipedia info that we have here, um, MGM produced this, like we said before, and uh, the budget for this film was $2.5 million, and its box office return was $12.4 million. So in at, that doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time, uh, adjusted for inflation, that is a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any time that you're making, like, what, four times your budget back, uh, that's, well, I say four times. It's, yeah, 12.5, that that would be four times, I guess. So five times, five times over, yeah. Yeah, See, so, nah. so five times your original budget, and, I mean, that's a success for the studio. Now, what they lost in that in advertising and all of that, you know, it's really hard to find that information, just because this mm-hmm. movie is so old. Like, they didn't, they, they, there weren't, like, film historians then. Or, there were, but I mean, like, they had, like, what, 20, 30 years of film to really, like, yeah. mull over? It, it was, Unless like, they're going all the way back to the beginning. And, like, they never thought that people would care about shit like this. Like, they used to just, like, destroy sets and props. Like, just burn them. Like, like they would yeah. for a theater set. Like, they just, they fucking just get rid of that shit. Or they reuse it in other movies. 
which That's we, true. which they we did saw a lot of that. We've seen in a lot of movies. But before we can, I go, believe it. But before we can get into anything like that, we have to. Where did it come from? And that man's name is Arthur Freed. Uh, like I said, friend of the show. See the Wizard of Oz episode. Um, he was a big MGM producer, especially for their movie musicals. They're a talking musicals, if you will. Um, and he had an idea to produce a new movie that like used songs like that had been previously made in MGM's catalog. So, taking songs from other movies, therefore creating like an MGM a t- musical anthology. Exactly. So you know it it would be easy to produce because they already had all the songs and they could just make a story to go around. And this was kind of a new concept. Um, he tasked MGM writers Betty Comden and Adolph Green to write a script for the film. However, they had this really weird specific contract. So. The, their contract stated that they could only work on musicals that would contain music that was of their own work or of Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hammerstein, or Irving Berlin. And huh. I, I don't know why. That seems like a very specific contract. Uh, you know, I'm not a Hollywood lawyer. Uh, maybe uh, it, it was a big come up for them to be on a contract with Rodgers and Hammerstein. Or, I, I I don't know. No, no, no. I mean, Rodgers and Hammerstein were some of the biggest musical writers at the time. So, like, it would make sense that, like, they would have specific writers for them. But, like, the fact that they can't diverge into other things. Anyway, it's really weird. And because they liked the concept of doing this, they actually got a new agent who, like, looked at the contract and was like, yeah, that's horseshit, fuck that. And so they... All right, sure. So they started working on the script because apparently that's how that works. Just get a nice. lawyer that's just like, yeah, that's bullshit, fuck it. If, if that's all it takes, then we're in the clear, but Dude, we're gonna do great. We're gonna do great. We're gonna get unbanned in China. Yeah, uh, nah, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Not <laughs> after last week. Not after last week. <laughs> um, anyway, so all of the songs in the film were chosen because of their proximity to when talkies first started appearing in american movie theaters so you know like singing in the rain had i think this was the seventh time it had been in an mgm movie like that the list goes on and on and on for all the songs in the movie but singing in the rain actually had been in so many fucking movies at this point um and weirdly enough um so the original script that they had written for this had howard keel who was like a big uh western star at the time they wanted him to be the star of this and uh this version would have had keel as like a silent western star turned singing cowboy okay so cowboy john you're describing (laughs) cowboy john john i actually don't think you've ever introduced the listeners to cowboy john um let me let me preface cowboy john so a couple of years back um john would at times drink so much that he would change personas like he would have different personalities for different levels of drug and cowboy john was like usually pretty far down on the list this was like not most drunk and cowboy john would just consist of john drinking beer and whiskey and coming up with his own country western songs you're giving this a lot more clout than i think it deserves like really i just slurred a word or two i was like hey that kind of sounds like a cowboy and then just kind of went with that that's basically like arthur for red dead redemption 2 that's basically what it is except he's singing songs it's it's an easy concept to grasp it's an easy concept to grasp and it was 
polarizing. You either love Cowboy John or you fucking hate Cowboy John. I still don't know where I stand on it. Um, I, I'm sure I know where your liver stands on Cowboy John, but anyway, <laughs> this is not Cowboy John. Um, so the the writers had a pretty hard time with this premise, as you can th- as you could probably imagine, because how are we gonna make a cowboy sing things like singing in the rain? Like it's it's just very strange. Like I I, I can't even imagine that. Like imagine like the Woody's Roundup like video, like in Toy Story 2, like the one that he's watching through like the middle of the movie. Imagine that, but like they're trying to sing Singing in the Rain during that, and I can't see it. I'm just imagining uh, Wynota's Big Brown Beaver by Primus. Like that music video? That's more what comes to my mind. You know what? Maybe Primus should remake this movie. They, they did a um, remake version of the Willy Wonka soundtrack. I don't see why they couldn't do this one. I Primus is such an interesting band. I will never truly know what Primus is. What is it? We don't know. Anyway, so they had a very hard time with this premise, and they actually handed in all their work, and they were just like, fuck this, we're done. So for the second time, they're saying, yeah, we can't do it. Um, However, a- around the time that they were going to, ha- that they handed in their work, um, one of the producers at MGM said, hey, uh, maybe what if we got Gene Kelly and changed the story a little bit? And they were like, ooh, we like Gene Kelly. Um, mm. And so they started coming up with like pretty much the plot for this movie. Like I think after they thought about having Gene Kelly or someone like Gene Kelly, they were like, uh, yeah, we could do this. This makes way more sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense. He, he is, like you said before, a song and dance man. So if you're trying to do a song and dance show, you get a song and dance man. Exactly. You don't get a cowboy for a song and dance, unless that he's a song and dance man cowboy, but I still think the aesthetics would have clashed. Anyway, um, unfortunately, Gene Kelly was way busy at this time. Uh, he was actually filming in American in Paris, which is another movie we'll have to do at some point. Um, I'd love to do a musical month on this podcast, but I think John might kill himself, so I can't do that. <laughs> That's a little extreme, but all right. But anyway, so he he wouldn't even go into a meeting about this movie until he was done with An American in Paris. And uh, so it was pretty much at a standstill until they knew if Gene Kelly could come on. And he finished An American in Paris, came and met with them like two days later. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm fucking crazy. Let's go ahead and do another movie already right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was one of those guys that just had to give everything that he was to the movie he was working on at the time. Like, he, he, he was not good at multitasking. No, he is a perfectionist, like, to a fault. Uh, a lot of people said he was a tyrant on this set, and uh, we will get to that later. But, you know, he he agreed to it. He was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. Um, I want to sing and dance on the movie screens, and uh, yeah, let's do it. And so, uh, you know... The only thing left for the writers was to decide, how the fuck do we open this thing? So they had three different ideas on how to open this film. Um, Either a look back at the silent era, a magazine interview with uh, Don Lockwood, or just the standard star meets girl, star loses girl concept. So, you know, so like, um, he meets girl, girl is disgusted with him, leaves, he can't get his fucking mind off of her. Like, you've seen the story a billion times. Yeah, so, uh, rather than just sticking one and going with it, they, uh, did all of them. Yeah, they just went ahead and did all three, which was actually at the suggestion of Betty Comden's husband. And hmm. I-, I think it led to one of the greatest openings to a film of all time. Like, it, you get a little bit of everything. You get, you know, we lead up to, like, before Silent Era, so, like, the, we see up through Vaudeville, then we see the Silent Era, and then we see where we're at now, like, which is at the very goddamn end of the Silent Era. Okay, but what about the intro to the Goonies? The intro to the Goonies? 
Goonies is remind me how the Goonies opens again. It's been I've I've gotta I've gotta be honest. I think it's been 15 years since I've seen the Goonies. All right, so picture this: county jail. Oh no, man appears to have hung himself. Guard comes in, says, "What a shame!" Wham, gets hit in the head. Prison break ensues. Man goes outside. Bandits set jail on fire. Drive away. All the kids, some way or another, like is, see the car, and then it becomes a thing where they knock a statue over, and the dick comes off the statue, and I, I, I don't know. It, it goes downhill from there. <laughs> the Goonies is such a weird movie. I I I, 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 I don't remember any of that. I, I honestly don't remember any of it. Maybe I've never seen the opening of the Goonies because I feel like I would remember that. It's I'm not gonna call it iconic. Okay. But it's pretty good. <laughs> Alright, so with their stars in tow and the script finished, they only needed one two more things. They needed two more original songs just to give Gene Kelly something new to work with so that he's not just working off all old material. And those two that were uh re- that were written specifically for the film were Make Em Laugh and Moses Supposes. Uh Moses Supposes is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Other than in the beginning where um they're 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 doing all the tricks with the violin and doing the uh, tap dancing um and they actually do something that's I, I took a few tap dancing lessons in college and what i could tell you right now is uh they were doing some you know like russian like you know um what do they do that thing when they do the kicks oh I, I wish i knew what that was called but i definitely don't i definitely don't either but anyway so they're doing that and they're traveling at the same time so they're not only are they doing like a very difficult tap move they are also traveling so they're like spinning around each other and like just the spatial like they never like the space between them never changes it's like it's crazy like i don't know how the fuck they do that yeah we're gonna call it the vodka dance the vodka dance this is the dance you do when you're on vodka you can only do this very well when you are on vodka vodka yes. it chooses you um <laughs> i can't believe i've never said that before that was amazing all right so enough of the writing and the jibber jabber let's get into the nitty-gritty of like when they filmed this shit um so- yeah so we're going to talk about this mainly through iconic scenes because that's where a bulk of the information comes from. So let's let's start it off with the big one, uh, Singing in the Rain, like the the title of the film and the, probably the most iconic scene from the film. Had you Were you aware of like the iconography of this scene before you watched it, John? Like, did you know it was um, coming? I remember watching Robots and there's like a parody <laughs> of this scene in that movie and that that's about all I knew about it. I, I'm bringing up Robots again. Just you thought that I forgot about robots. I I can't believe that you remember th- the smallest details about robots. Like I it had Robin Williams. I understand. Lots of things had Robin Williams in it, though. And I don't remember everything he was in. But... Uh, Flubber. Um, Jack. Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, Bicentennial Man. Bicentennial Man is, like, a movie I saw when I was, like, way too young. And, like, I didn't get it and didn't like it. And I just had it. Oh, you didn't understand the complexities of robo-love? <laughs> robo-love. Yep, Who robo-love. taught this thing to love? Anyway. <laughs> um, Singing in the Rain... Uh, the, the Singing in the Rain scene, uh, Gene Kelly actually had a 103 degree fever while filming this. Hmm. So you could say that he was uh, hot stuff. He was hot stuff singing in the rain. And I'm sure getting all that rain poured on him did not make it any better. No, of course not. He was wearing a wool suit. 
actually, that, that was one of the things I was about to get to. Uh, his wool sh his wool suit actually shrunk significantly, and they had to go buy him another one after about two to three days of filming. Uh, there's a lot of rumors surrounding this scene. Um, a lot of people think that Kelly actually did this whole sequence in one take, and that is absolutely not true. He was suffering for two to three days trying to get this fucking shit done. Um, and had he, they filmed this now, he might have been able to do this all in one take. However, at the time of filming, they probably only had like two cameras in the whole fucking studio. And these things don't move like cameras do now. Like these things are meant to stay in one place unless you put them on a dolly and even that doesn't fucking work a lot of the time. So they're pretty big. So they're pretty fucking big. Like, they weigh about two tons. Like, I mean, this thing is, like, recording sound and film at the same time, and that was something that was unheard of at the time. So these things are just fucking huge. So there was no, like, just moving it willy-nilly. Like, like, you could move it from side to side with a mechanism, but if that mechanism wasn't there, you're not fucking moving that thing. And uh, another rumor about this is that they actually mixed uh, milk with the water that was coming down so that it wouldn't be uh, reflective. Like, that's another thing, kids. Anytime you're looking at a movie, like, look in the puddles and anything that's reflective. You might see some shit you're not supposed to see, like cameras and lights and shit. Yeah, or blackface. Or... <laughs> Can you imagine just in the middle of twilight, like you look down at one of the puddles and there's just a guy in blackface? I, you, you know what? Yeah, I can't imagine that. You know what else I can imagine? Mixing milk in with this water and just dousing a studio in it. Can you imagine the smell after a few minutes? I, I can only imagine because they didn't have like almond milk at the time. Like this would have stunk to high heaven. Thank God it wasn't true. They actually painstakingly backlit this scene. Well, that's better than putting milk on everything. I agree, but God damn, that must have taken for fucking ever. Just working uh, yeah, with sure. lights a little bit in theater, I can tell you backlighting something is like the last thing you wanted. I remember I, I believe it. I, I directed a uh, one act play in college and I had a giant mirror in the middle of the stage for no reason i can't believe i did this and made someone work with me on it <laughs> and so i had to have my entire set backlit and people fucking hated me <laughs> well i guess there are worse reasons you know for people to hate you uh, again right. blackface i mean i've never done that not once not ever not once not ever whose chair is that that's not my chair anyway um deep cuts deep cuts deep cuts <laughs> all right um so let's talk about debbie reynolds a little bit um debbie reynolds was 19 at the time and uh just so you know um gene kelly was like i said damn near 40 during this so uh yucky <laughs> um hollywood magic hollywood magic if she it's just two sheep short of a dowry it's two sheep short of a dowry is that how you get sheep is that the only way to get sheep because like i have no idea how to buy sheep uh I, I, yeah you gotta know a guy you, you gotta know a guy he's a sheep guy and he's, he'll sell you sheep you can't just go to the store and like ask for sheep you know like you can go to tractor supply and buy a duck but if you want to get a sheep that's going to cost you a little bit more you gotta know a guy and that's what makes it so special and that's how you can use it for stuff like dowries is because you gotta know a guy and if that guy happens to be your daughter's suitor well you're in luck you're getting some sheep okay so is it one daughter per one sheep, or are we talking about, like, maybe, like, four sheeps per one daughter? Depends on the daughter, depends on the sheep. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, like, how many daughters for a cow? 
okay cows are different so like cows uh you know higher maintenance i guess like uh you gotta feed them more uh you gotta milk them or they stop producing milk uh the only other thing you can do with them is butcher them and then you don't have a cow you just have a bunch of meat but like with a sheep you know you can milk a sheep but most importantly you can shear the sheep over and over and over and over again see like that makes a lot of sense it's like a gift that keeps on giving it's just like a daughter you can trade for that sheep i guess dude we gotta start having daughters if we're gonna if we're gonna have to trade them for animals in the new world order like i i don't even know what i'm gonna do at this point i don't think i have enough toilet paper to pay for a cow or a chicken uh, you know what man you can wipe your ass with toilet paper you cannot wipe your ass with a cow i think I feel like the cow would sustain me for longer than the toilet paper, though. Anyway, this is insanely off-topic. Debbie Reynolds. That it is. Let's give her her shining moment. Um, So Debbie Reynolds, by her own admission, was, quote-unquote, not a dancer. And, uh, this pissed Gene Kelly off pretty much. Like, that that's the consensus that I've came to. Um, by some accounts, he was, like, you know, just a little peeved. And he's like, look, just do the work and you'll get it. And by other accounts, he was a complete fucking asshole to Debbie Reynolds about this. And it seems to be going more in the asshole direction than anything. Even though Debbie Reynolds swears that he was, like, a nice man after this film. He just was really not into parts of this film. And we'll get into that later. But he, he knows what he's about. And that thing that he's about is tap dancing. He, I mean, Gene Kelly is the fucking, like, savant of goddamn tap dancing like the man tap danced out of his mother's womb that's a big vagina but he did it um <laughs> yeah this is like some son of the mask shit exactly hello my baby hello my honey hello my ragtime gal that's this guy oh uh, yes love um, me some michigan j frog i i love him too man i love you like looney tunes a lot i mean space jam was great space jam we said it once i'll say it again space jam space jam does not get the credit it deserves we will talk about it at another time. <laughs> um, when we review Space Jam. When we review Space Jam. Uh, whoever wants to suggest that to give us an excuse, go right ahead. Um, so, you know, it's, the, the, going back into this, Gene Kelly basically was an asshole to Debbie Reynolds. And it actually, there's actually a rumor going ar that went around that Fred Astaire actually helped her with her dance moves so fred astaire was also a song and dance man at the time um him and gene kelly were kind of always rivals which is probably why he helped debbie reynolds and you know so he found her crying underneath a piano on the mgm lot one day it was just like it'll be okay i'll help you and so he helped her There's and a perfect I get... song and dance man <laughs> they kind of have a voice like this um and so he helped her out she got she got it most of it down even though she had to practice a shit ton um, and, uh, this, this kind of came to a head when they filmed the good morning scene, mm -hmm. which they shot from about 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, on like a, I think it was a Wednesday. And, uh, after mm -hmm. this was complete, Debbie Reynolds' feet were actually bleeding so badly she had to go to the hospital. Nice. Uh, you basically set this up to be an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia by saying <laughs> 8 to 11 p.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> Except this took place in Hollywood, California, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Both equally yes. scary. Both for very different reasons. Um, yes, they, they are both very scary. And another thing about the good morning number is that um, it actually took 40 takes to get that final scene where they, like, you know, go over the couches. It took yeah. 40 takes to get that done. So a majority of the shoot was that part of it. So do they have stunt doubles for furniture in movies like this? 
like, are you saying, like, did they have, like, extras to go over the couches for them, or did the couches have extras? Did the couch have an extra? I'm sure they had at least two couches that they could swap out, just in case. You know, actually, that's probably really important to have in a movie like this. If you just break something and you have to do another take, but you broke the couch, then, I mean, gotta throw another couch in there. Right, or you gotta just be accepting of what the scene was Mm -hmm. um and then another thing about this is that um and this is kind of like some people point to the assholery of gene kelly here but i i actually think this has a much more simple meaning um he actually dubbed over demi debbie reynolds um tapping in this scene so like afterwards he like re-recorded the tap so that they would sound a little better a little crisper and this was actually a common practice at the time he overdubbed just about everybody's taps in this movie Side question. Is tap dancing like exotic dancing for people with foot fetishes? Um, I guess you could say that. Uh, tap dancing is actually very difficult. See, ex- exactly. So It must be erotic then. I, I guess so. I mean, like, would, would you get turned on by a lady who's tap dancing? Uh, depends on the lady, depends on the tap dancing. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Alright, so let's go into some more um, hospital stays on this movie. Uh, Donald O'Connor had to stay in the hospital for almost a week after filming the Make Em Laugh sequence. Uh, because he was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. Ah. And I guess... That's a lot. I guess just the overexertion just fucking got to him and he was like... <gasps> Yeah, I, I guess intense tap dancing and jumping through walls and doing backflips and stuff doesn't really jive well with 80 cigarettes a day. Let's do some quick math here. All right, so, like, <laughs> you're talking about a man that smokes 80 cigarettes a day. We'll say, on average, a cigarette takes, like, two minutes to finish. We're, we're talking about 160 minutes just actively smoking a cigarette per day. And, you know, you know what's fucked up about that, man? Like... Hmm. He lived to be, like, 80, 90 years old. Like, I, they don't make people like that anymore. Like, if you did that now, you'd fucking die immediately. We were bred from tougher stock. I guess so. I mean, I guess they were the greatest generation for a reason. I don't know. That must be why. It's the ability to tap dance and smoke 80 cigarettes a day and uh, probably carry on a, a significant drinking problem. Oh, probably. I mean, like, there was no such thing as a drinking problem back then. Not for men, anyway. Um, Right, there were drinking solutions. There were drinking solutions, and if a woman drank too much, she was a fucking drunk. Anyway, um, speaking of cigarettes, uh, Sid Charisse actually smoked a cigarette for her first time during the Broadway ballet number. So, like, she was the one in, like, the green dress in, like, the middle of, like, the big Broadway ballet sequence. Mm-hmm. Like, you hit Gene Kelly's, like, main dance partner for that whole thing. Uh, right. They actually made her smoke a cigarette, and she was like, okay, whatever, and she lit it, smoked it for as long as it took to film that scene, never smoked another day in her life. Uh, you know what? Good on her. Good on her. Uh, if anybody out there is thinking about starting smoking, don't. <laughs> yeah, you're better off for it. It's uh, it's very hard to quit. Um, And I think the last interesting thing I really found about the... The production of this film was actually, you know how, like, a main plot of the film is that Debbie Reynolds' character is voicing over Lena Lamont's character. Or of the Lena Lamont character. My apologies. And for some reason, like, that was actually not even Debbie Reynolds doing that voiceover. It was actually Lena Lamont's actress. 
actress using her natural voice. Instead of the voice she uses for the whole movie, she does this very sultry voice in real life. And then to complicate it more, the singing sections that they did for the dubbing were actually not even sung by Debbie Reynolds or Lena Lamont. It was done by a singer named Betty Noyce. Right, so like, uh, I'm a dude playing a dude dressed as another dude. It's one of those situations. It's one of those situations. This is unnecessarily complicated. Like, pick one or the fucking other. God damn. I guess. Uh, you know what? Gene Kelly had to have it his way. He and had maybe to have it that his was way. part of it. It had to be. Like it it just absolutely has to be like that. Um all right, so that's that kind of clears up the production side of this. Uh let's get into the release and reception. Uh the film opened to rave reviews and to this day has a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is impressive all on its own. Yeah, absolutely. Like no one said like this is okay. 60%. Everyone was like, yeah, this is the one, man. <laughs> this, this is, is the, the one. movie. <laughs> and even back then, I mean, like, it made $3,263,000 domestically and $2,367,000 internationally, earning the studio a net profit of $666,000, which at the time, I guess, was good. I mean, I'm not going to turn down that much money, ever. No, 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 no. Especially with 666 in there. Hell yeah, give it to me. Right. Give the me devil that. devil at the crossroads at midnight <laughs> hell yeah I, lo- I love the devil, man. Anyway, um, the film had a lot of merch. Hot takes. <laughs> hot takes. Hot takes. Flaming devil hot Cheetos hot takes. Anyway. Ooh. Um, sounds delicious, doesn't it? Anyway. Ooh. <laughs> the film had a lot of merchandise, including a very popular vinyl soundtrack, so I think that kind of offset, like, what they didn't make on the movie. And uh, they actually wouldn't make any more movie other any more money off the movie until they did a home video release in 1992. And this was marked as, like, a special edition. Like, I guess this would have been the 40th anniversary. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, the VHS included a making-of documentary, a cut solo rendition of You're My Lucky Star by Debbie Reynolds, and uh, the original theatrical trailer. So this actually had bonus materials on it, which was kind of uncommon for videotapes, right at the beginning of videotapes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so... And there's been many, 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 many DVD and Blu-ray re-releases of this, yada, yada. I could go on about it. I won't bore you. If you How w- many do you have? How many do I, how many copies of this do I have? I actually still only have the DVD because it is the definitive edition. Like the, um, the Blu-ray they came out with this does not have all the bonus features on it. And until they release a better Blu-ray version, I won't buy it. All right. Well, at least you got principles. I have principles, man. Like it, I hate it. I hate it when they like do a Blu-ray or a 4K re-release of something and they don't port over all the extra features. Like what the fuck are you doing? Just put them all yeah, on there. It Just do probably it. wouldn't have cost them anything extra to put it in there. Like, I guess if you're remastering it, but just remaster the movie you don't have to remaster the bonus features no i mean everyone's going to understand most people are not going to watch them except for me i'm that guy i watch them. right this guy the guy you're looking for this is that guy exactly like when you're thinking about oh who am i making this for it's that guy I, it's me it's me i'm him <laughs> anyway all right so the legacy of this film um this is uh consistently been in afi which is the american film institute's like best of list um this has actually most recently been their fifth best film of all time that's pretty good. And to top all of that off, they actually, this film is in the National Archives of Washington, D.C. for being a historically or culturally important. Interesting. I wonder why. Do you think it's the whole 80 cigarettes a day thing, or do you think it's like the, <laughs> the man-girl love? I think it's just, it's very American. It's The aesthetic of it is very American. And they did, and at the time, they did a very, very good job of portraying 1920s culture through a 1950s lens. So that's another interesting thing. Like, you're watching a movie about the 1920s 
movies through the lens of the 1950s when it was only 30 years ago. Exactly, exactly. Kind of like us looking back at a, a Nirvana live recording. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. If, you, if you've never watched the live at Reading uh, Nirvana performance, it is fucking great. Uh, it's a lot better than the Blink-182 live at Reading recording. Oh, <laughs> If you are mad about how bad Blink-182 sounds live, then you don't get it, man. You just don't get it. It's uh, it's an experience. It's an experience. It's it's no worse or better with uh, Matt Skiba, but it it feels samey. It feels home. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's a little better. It, it, if only slightly. If only slightly. Um, You still want to see Blink get back together with the original lineup at some point. But anyway, that's not this movie. Um, no, it's not. Alright, so this movie actually, like I said, had a Broadway stage adaption done in 1985, and it actually opened at the Gershwin Theater, which is the current home of Wicked. And Fun! It, and it will be forever. Wicked will probably never close. It'll be just like Phantom of the Opera. We're gonna see which one lives longer. It'll be like Betty White and, uh, who's the guy Frank from the Rolling Stones? Frank Synopsis. Frank Synopsis. Well, Frank Synopsis is immortal. We've already determined this. Uh, who's the guy from the Rolling right. Stones? Uh, Keith Richards. Keith Richards. It'll be like Betty White and Keith Richards. We're just going to see which one lasts longer. Um, it's an endurance room. It's a big old dance around that nobody wins. Um, um, this film has been referencing countless other media, including like Family Guy, um, specifically that episode where Joe gets his legs back and he forces all of them to do the good morning number. Nice. And um, and it's the title song is actually referenced um, in A Clockwork Orange in a very odd way. <laughs> and uh, if you have seen in a clockwork orange uh, you know exactly what the fuck i'm talking about because it is scarring and uh john i'm sure we will do clockwork orange at some point on this podcast and you will know exactly what i'm talking about yeah i think this is one of those that i'm gonna want to read the book for kind of like um what were the other ones that i read the book for i read part of dracula i read starship troopers i read i feel like there's another one that i read i don't remember what it was i don't remember what it was either did you read a little bit of the wizard of oz maybe no i didn't i must be thinking of some other book that i read i don't know who knows who knows? i read books <laughs> i know how to read <laughs> I'm not illiterate. I don't have to watch movies. I can read the book first. God, can you imagine, like, closed captioning, how distracting that must be? Like, I can read, and it's distracting. Like, can you imagine not being able to read and seeing it come up on the screen? I can Maybe that's why people get so pissed off about it. Um, I have a uh, fiancé. I say that like I own her. Um, my fiancé is um slightly hearing impaired, so we actually watch everything with subtitles. So it's actually very weird for me to watch something without subtitles now. And, you know, being really interested in script writing anyway it's like kind of interesting for me to see the subtitles so i actually okay, I, I actually prefer subtitles but i mean that's just me. uh, of course yep <laughs> i every time i go somewhere and they have subtitles and i'm like so uh is everybody here cool are, are we good can we like turn those off are we good oh yeah nope okay nope just keep watching. you got you gotta keep them on for those people that need them anyway um so, if you thought I was going to get through this episode without mentioning Disney, you were goddamn wrong. Um, I'm going to have to shoehorn in a Margaritaville, too. Okay, you know what? You find it, and if it's an acceptable reference, it'll stay in. Um, okay. <laughs> so, the scene of Keen Gene Kelly doing the singing in the rain bit was immortalized on the great movie ride in Disney's Hollywood Studios, which actually used to be Disney's MGM Studios, but then they lost the MGM rights, and uh, I, I think that with this ride, that's kind of where it went out most. Um, because the great movie ride unfortunately closed in 2017 to make way for Mickey's Runaway Railway, which actually opened just a couple of months ago. Oh, nice. So now you can ride the rat train. You know, uh, <laughs> Disney can run a train uh, 
physically and financially and emotionally on all the patrons. And I will eat it up. I will buy it just like always. Yep. Uh, the great movie ride at Disney. Any relation to the uh, Roger Ebert quote unquote great movie? Um, no, no relation at all. Um, actually, this one was more closely associated with um, oh god, uh, Leonard Malton. Leonard Malton actually did the intros for all of us. Leonard Malton and Disney in the like late '80s, early '90s were like very like close for some. Uh, who knows? He's a famous reviewer. If you don't know who Leonard Malton is, um, he's got a great podcast that he does with his daughter called Malton on Movies. I would check that out. Um, please have us on sponsor us. Uh, please, Malton yeah, Daddy. This is not a paid ad. This is not a paid ad. Uh, we we expect payment in the future. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's get into the weird shit. Let, let, that's why everybody's here. All right. Oh, yeah. So the original negative for this film was actually destroyed in a fire on the MGM lot. So no version of this film that you've ever watched has been the original negative. Oh, uh, I couldn't tell. No, I mean, you wouldn't be able to. They make they made such close copies, but it just sucks that it's like, oh, man, the original negative that they originally filmed on is gone and I'll never see it. It's nuts. I kind of like that three hour version of uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Uh, that should be lost. I'm glad that that's locked up. I hope I never have to watch that. <laughs> if I find it, we're doing it. If you find it, we will do a Facebook Live and we will watch it. Perfect. Perfect. All right. And another weird thing was, uh, and this is kind of what I mentioned earlier with uh, how Gene Kelly was being on set, was kind of for a reason. Uh, he was actually trying to get out of his contract with MGM, and he was using being an asshole on this set and off to kind of get out of it because he was tired of having to turn down roles at other studios, uh, most famously Guys and Dolls. Mm -hmm. So he basically went around to press junkets and was like, yeah, yeah, this movie sucks and uh it sucks just like mgm and it's all just a big fuck you to mgm i'm paraphrasing but that's pretty much what he was doing yeah i'm into it <laughs> so so of course the studio got fucking furious with him and let him go makes sense makes enough sense um i guess that i guess that's one way to do it um i like, apparently you can just get a lawyer to get you out of contracts uh, like the story writers for this did <laughs> maybe he so should... normally you have to buy your way out and that involves getting many sheep and taking them to mgm and being like here is my offering i have paid my weight in sheep and i am leaving so this lot. so wait 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 are you suggesting that you can also trade sheep for other goods and services I'm saying you can trade uh, sheep for other people. Oh, okay. So could I trade sheep for daughters? Well, that's the whole dowry concept that we went over before. But in this case, he is buying his freedom with sheep. Okay, but hear me out. Okay, so let's say I have 50 sheep. What if I okay, give... that's a lot of sheep. What if I give 25 of them away to get, let's say, 10 daughters? I, can I then okay. can I then adopt all of them and give them all away to get more sheep than I began? Because let's say I can get right, like so, five sheep per daughter. Okay, so what you're doing is you are flipping daughters for, <laughs> for an increased return on sheep. Yes, like a foreclosed home. <laughs> Yes, very much. I like don't want to think about this anymore. <laughs> okay, I'll give you something else to think about. Um, so the film's network television premiere was scheduled for November twenty third, nineteen sixty three, but had to be postponed for two weeks due to the assassination of John F. Kennedy taking place one day prior. Ah, uh, yes, back in the sixties when we had principles. You know what happened today? Nothing. <laughs> they would have just played that shit. It doesn't matter. Yep, they would have kept on going like nothing ever happened. If dude it's it's 
nuts the world we live in today i mean people just don't get sad like about stuff like that anymore it's nuts no i mean we're just desensitized to the terrible things of the world because we have a machine in our pocket that'll show us it every single minute of every single day exactly like i i i, t- I contemplated just having my phone go oh god why anytime cnn sends me like a notification it's just because that's how i feel it's like oh god what happened now ah yeah not good not, not good, good. I, I we we shouldn't know everything that's going on in the world at all times i don't think i think that's too much yeah i agree keep up with the big stuff stop caring so much about movies zach <laughs> I, the, the movies seem to be the least of my problems. I'm still trying to figure out this whole sheep exchange. D- dude, we'll, we'll talk offline about it. We'll talk offline. Um, we're almost done, I promise. <laughs> um, so Sid Charisse, uh, like I mentioned before in the Broadway ballet scene, uh, her green dress was apparently a little too short when they first started filming it. And uh, you could see her pubic hair in the shot and they actually had to stop filming to get her a different dress okay so a few things here uh we're gonna go on like a little problem solving adventure here so dress is too short can see pubic hair solution is replace dress i'm gonna go out on a limb and say that changing the pubic hair was probably easier than changing the whole costume um i think it was actually taboo back then to like shave pubic hair like i don't think that was like a thing back then okay so so then the argument becomes it is wrong to shape pubic hair but having a dress that is short enough to expose said pubic hair is not i agree with your logic i see where you're coming from with this however they just decided to get i mean maybe that's why they decided to get her a longer dress maybe maybe they had that exact thought process i have no dog in this fight forgive the expression that's disgusting i have no (laughs) sheep in this exchange but (laughs) i really really think that we're focusing on the wrong things here i know it's the 50s but you think do it nude for all i care i just really have a problem with them spending so much time being like oh is is that is that a curly cute change the dress fuck it change the dress we can't we can't know that she has a vagina (laughs) especially since i'm 99 certain you can see some mad camel toe in one of those scenes oh yeah i mean i guess camel toe is fine but pubic hair is not uh, you know what, man? Uh, it, it was a funny time. It, it was a funny time. A deep throat hadn't come out yet. Uh, porn was not a thing then. Well, it was a thing, but not the way we know it now. Anyway, um, so the last little piece of information I have here is um, Rita Moreno, who plays Zelda in the film, is actually the only surviving member of this cast and crew. This movie's almost 70 years old, and with that it just comes time i mean people pass away and i mean you know it's it's just weird to watch a movie that where you know that everyone who worked on this has passed away i mean yeah i guess so it's kind of like listening to the ramones yeah oh too soon oh always too. it will always be too soon they all died so tragically young i i hate that um but anyway yeah so that is singing in the rain uh tears singing and rain all in one amazing there's a lot of moisture so do you, <laughs> there's lots of moisture in this film uh some of it on that pubic hair that's why they had to cut it uh, you took it too far <laughs> too you know far? The, the sheep i can handle the uh, go on just go on all right so how did you, how do you feel about the movie now now that you know a little bit about the background and a little bit about the context that it takes place in well there's nothing there that really pissed me off you know th- this is a good movie it's well done it's entertaining it's feel good um it's not super annoying and you know it's for someone who really is not into musicals in any way shape or form uh, i think that that's an achievement for this movie and it, it, I'm glad that you liked it. I, I'm honestly surprised. I thought you were going to come on here and be like, I hate this as much as you hated Puppet Master. Ah, uh, no, okay, not that bad. <laughs> not to the point where you had to uh, put 
gin into a squirt gun and squirt it in your mouth every time you wanted to fucking kill yourself while you watch this movie. I was hoping you wouldn't have this reaction, but maybe we'll do a mu movie musical one day that will make you have that reaction, because I do still need to get you back for that. I mean... <sighs> Nah, it'll be fine. It'll be good. Do whatever, man. <laughs> Do whatever. All right, coming up next, Repo the Genetic Opera. I don't even pretend to understand what that is. Oh, the, the movie does not pretend to understand itself. Anyway, so I guess that's going to wrap it up for this week on Singing in the Rain. Uh, for four-year information, I'm Zach. And I'm John. See a new movie this week. 